On Wednesday, November 8, 2017, the Acton Institute hosted its 8th annual Open Mic Night at the University Club of Chicago in Chicago, Illinois. The event featured a panel discussion and Q&A session with Ismail Hernandez, founder and director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute, Samuel Gregg, director of research at the Acton Institute, and Paul Bonicelli, director of programs and education at the Acton Institute. Here now with opening remarks is Paul Bonicelli. Good evening. Welcome to Open Mic Night at Acton Institute. My name is Paul Bonicelli, Director of Programs and Education at Acton. Am I talking too loud? It sounds really loud. I'm good? All right. Um, this is the second time I've been here. I think this is the eighth time we've done this. Last year was my first time. Uh, I'd only been at Acton just a few months. And uh, it's a lovely place, lovely city. I used to come to this city when I was a kid. My grandmother lived it. You can tell from my accent I'm not from here, obviously. But uh, my grandmother lived here for years, and we used to come up, so it's a, a treat to come over um, and to be with you. And um, what we wanted to do tonight was um, our, our two guest speakers uh, are going to take a few moments and talk to you about um, the, uh, the parts of Acton that they are uh, active in. Uh, Sam Gregg, as many of you know him, has uh, been with Acton many years, and Ismail Hernandez is not formally with Acton, but someone that we've gotten to know over the years, and um, they will each talk from their perspective. I would like to say a few things after they've talked, and then we want to open it up for uh, you to ask any questions, have any kind of discussion that you want, um, in particular uh, about anything that's current as well. We, uh, we can be stuffy political theorists all we want, and that's all good. Sam's especially one of those. Uh, but we want to apply it to practical matters as well. Let me tell you about each of our speakers. Um, Ismail Hernandez is a new friend to me. Uh, I haven't known him that long. Uh, but he is uh, more acting than I am in the sense that he has been a part of Father Robert Sirico's world for a lot of years, and he's probably going to talk about that tonight, that he believes what he believes and does what he does uh, in the freedom movement because in, in many ways because of his relationship to Father Robert. And I'll let you, uh, I'll let you Ismail, tell him about that. But he is the founder and executive director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute, which may sound familiar if you've been to a, freedom and virtuous, uh, a Free and Virtuous Society conference that Acton does. Ismail grew up in a communist household and joined the Socialist Party of Puerto Rico. Eventually, uh, he gave that up and embraced free markets. He has a master's degree in political science. Wonder that didn't bring you back to Marxism. And served for 15 years as an inner city Catholic ministry, in an inner city Catholic ministry in southwest Florida. He's from Fort Myers now. In 2016, he wrote his first book, which we have out uh, in front. I'll talk more about that later. Entitled, Not Tragically Colored, Freedom, Personhood, and the Renewal of Black America. And that's published by the Acton Institute. He lives in uh, Fort Myers, as I said, with his wife and three children. Our other speaker is uh, Dr. Samuel Gregg, that many of you know and have heard here before, I'm sure, or heard in Grand Rapids or many other places. He is research director at the Acton Institute. He has written and spoken extensively on political, ec political economy, economic history, ethics and finance, natural law theory, and others. He has an MA in political philosophy from the University of Melbourne and a DPhil from the University of Oxford. He's the author of many books, two or three are out there, and again, I'll talk about them more 
but they are a wide range of topics that, whether it's economics or history or ethics or, or philosophy or, or the importance of moral theology for all of those topics, it always covers the fundamental act and core principles, um, which have to do with who we are as human beings, who made us, what that means for us, what that means for society, and what that means for every sphere of life that we engage in. Uh, so without further ado, I'd like uh, Sam Gregg to come and then Ismail after him. Thank you, Paul. As you can tell, I'm also not from around here by my voice. A little further south than Paul. But... <laughs> um, thanks, Paul, for the introduction. It's great to be in Chicago again. <clears throat> uh, when I was uh, asked to come and speak at this, I said, what do you want me to talk about? And they said, whatever you want. And I said, that's always a very, very dangerous thing to say to anyone. Um, but I couldn't help but think that uh, it's been an interesting week for anniversaries. Yesterday, of course, was the first anniversary of the election of Donald Trump to the presidency of the United States, which is a surprise to a good number of people, as we've seen in the press over and over again. But there was another anniversary that happened this week. Does anyone remember what it, what it was? 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. It wasn't really a revolution, it was a coup d'etat. That's accurately describing what it was. And I was thinking about that, and I've written some things about the significance of this particular event in terms of the power of ideas, who would have thought that uh, a middle-aged man sitting in the British Library in the 1840s and 1850s and 1860s would think that his ideas would at some point lead to a very small group of very, very committed individuals taking over a country that had been one of the world's biggest empires and eventually becoming the Soviet Union? Who would have thought that? The power of ideas. Who would have also thought that this relatively small group of people taking power in this relatively backward, on the edge of Europe country would be creating a political system <clears throat> that would, along with similar regimes, end up killing something like 100 million people? I don't know if many of you have read a book called The Black Book of Communism written by a group of, um, in the 1990s, written by a group of left-wing French intellectuals who just decided, well, let's have a look at this and find out how many people communism actually killed. And they estimated about 100 million people. That's staggering. What's even more staggering, however, is that there was something else that happened this week. And there was another, another of these polls, polls of the millennials. We're always asking millennials what they think about different questions. And something like 40%, 45% of millennials said that they would prefer to live in a socialist slash communist set of political and economic arrangements. That's pretty stunning when you think about it. Uh, it's, of course, it's a, it's a while now since the wall came down. It's a while since we saw Gorbachev preside over the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But, and many of us here have uh, 
long memories of what communism meant in terms of its implications for foreign policy, for the economic devastation it invariably causes. Lots of us remember that, but a lot of younger people don't. The other thing you're finding with a lot of younger people, <clears throat> and not sometimes not just younger people, but some older people, uh, which, something that we're very concerned about at the Acton Institute, which is the growth of anti-free market sentiment. And not just on the left. That's more or less always been the case, and that's become more radical, I think, over the past eight years, nine years, ten years, and it's becoming even more radical now when you have younger people saying things like they would like prefer to live in a socialist economy. But there's also growing scepticism about free markets on the political right. I don't know how many of you are readers of a very important journal in the United States called First Things. Probably quite a few of you are familiar with it. It's a very good journal. It consists basically, I call it the religious conservative journal. It consists of Roman Catholics, Evangelicals, Eastern Orthodox, uh, Christians, Orthodox Jews, who have a, let's call it a broadly conservative understanding of theology and religion and have a broadly conservative approach to politics, social questions and the economy. But over the past seven years, I think, maybe even back further, they've been steadily distancing themselves from the one strong commitment to free markets that they had. If you go back and you read some issues of first things over the past few years, you've seen this position become more and more clear. There was one writer in First Things, an Eastern Orthodox theologian, who described the possession of wealth as, quote-unquote, intrinsically evil. Now, if you, are, if you know anything about moral theology, you know the words intrinsically evil. That's really, really serious. That means the very act is irredeemable. It doesn't matter what your intentions are or conditions or anything like that. The very act itself is in always and in every time evil. So if you think about that, the possession of wealth is intrinsically evil. I never thought I'd see something like that written in first things. So I responded to that, and there was a back and forth between myself and this, this particular theologian. And then this, the last issue of First Things, like the October issue of First Things, they had an article by the editor, Rusty Reno, who's um, someone I know very well. I think he's a good man, doing good work, in which he more or less distanced First Things from its formerly strong support of free markets and what the uh, theologian Michael Novak, who, wasn't, who died earlier this year, uh, who was on the board of First Things, he called his book The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism. And this article was a critique of the spirit of democratic capitalism, saying that it was a little out of date. Well, of course, it's 25 years, 30 years since the book came out, so books do age but also disputing some of the sort of fundamental assumptions and some of the arguments that were made in that very important book that made it very clear to a lot of believing Jews and believing Christians that you could be a faithful Jew, a faithful Christian, and support things like the free economy. So that, I think, was very significant because it tells us that there's a great deal of fracturing that's happening across, let's call it the centre-right right now, in the United States. Growing skepticism about free markets, 
which in some cases I think is a proxy for skepticism about the American experiment, skepticism about the modern project, skepticism about whether Christians can find their place and live in harmony in a free society that takes free markets very seriously. Uh, in fact, when you talk to younger Christians about some of these questions, what you find is that they've got some real concerns about free markets and what that means for the social and cultural state of our country. And I sympathize with them to the extent that we clearly have in the United States some very, very serious social and cultural and economic problems. The question we have to ask ourselves is whether, and this is the question I often pose to some of these younger Christians who come to things like Acting University, and I ask them, why do you think the free market is the cause of something like, I don't know, gender theory? Well, that was actually, you, you might laugh, but that was actually written in this article by the editor of First Things. He basically implied that free markets, because they celebrate freedom and promote freedom and are based upon freedom, tend to lead to people thinking that freedom extends to things like deciding uh, your biological sex. Now, my response to that was to say, I don't think markets have anything to do with that at all. I think that's to do with some very serious problems of how we understand the human person and how we understand the relationship between men and women and what it means to be a man and a woman. And we're very deeply confused about these things in our current society, but this has nothing to do with the free economy. So at Acton, this has uh, consumed a great deal of time on the part of uh, the research department which I head. I know that uh, some of our programs are now going to be starting to focus more specifically upon some of these particular questions. But it does reflect, I think, this growing splintering across the right with deep divisions about some of these particular issues, which, of course, were reflected in last year's uh, presidential election. Um, President Trump is a skeptic, clearly a skeptic about free trade. He's somewhat of an economic nationalist. Uh, and there's many people on the centre-right who are, do not like this. Uh, at the same time, there are clearly some people on the centre-right who think that markets have not lived out to their potential, that markets have had some serious social and cultural effects, uh, and who also think that conservatives have been very bad at making the case for free markets for a while now. And I happen to think that part is true. Conservatives have not been very good at arguing the case for free markets for a while. Why is that? Well, I think conservatives tend to talk about markets in terms of policy, and they get into policy wonkery very quickly. They also, I think, have not been attentive enough to the short-term creative destruction that's caused by markets. We all know that markets, in the end, are good in the long term. They lower prices, they keep us competitive, they create and stimulate entrepreneurship. But in the short term, it's very hard to know what to do with the 55-year-old coal miner in Pennsylvania whose mind shuts because they can't compete with China or India or name your developing country anymore. They just can't get up and walk off to Silicon Valley and start a internet business. Now, that's not an argument against free markets, but I think conservatives have not really thought seriously enough about how 
they answer those sorts of questions. And when they can't answer those questions, people start turning to other economic positions as a way of trying to see a way forward for themselves and for their families. So I don't want to be too, too negative tonight because I know that um, this is a chance for us to um, be somewhat celebratory. But I do think there are some very serious problems facing the conservative movement right now. I could go through and list a lot of them. I think the phenomena of what some people call conservative ink is a problem. Much of the conservative movement, in my view, has become a bit of an industry. And like most industries, it has its own self-interest and sometimes loses sight of what it's about. And I think that's become a problem with much of the conservative movement uh, in the United States. But I think part of the solution to that is to go back to the foundational ideas. And the foundational ideas for the Acton Institute are the truths about the human person. That humans are created in God's image, which means they are, by nature, reasonable. They have free will. They are, by nature, creative. They are fallen. They are sinful. They are individual. And they are social. And I think if, let's call it the conservative movement, the centre-right, this non-left group that exists out there, if it is going to be making a more convincing moral case, a more convincing normative case for things like the free economy, for limited government, <clears throat> for a society, strong civil society in which religion plays a vital role in animating these principles and gluing the society together, if we're willing to go back to those principles in a systematic way, I find it very easy to believe that these things can gel together. Uh, I don't think we can go back to the days where we just assume that, okay, we have a common enemy, it's called communism. That's what I think is what held a lot of the right together for a very long time. It held together economic libertarians, uh, traditionalists, foreign policy hawks, social conservatives, free marketers, etc. And when the enemy went away, we suddenly discovered we actually disagree with each other about a lot of things. But I do think that if that is going, to, if we're going to build up this foundation again for this a, a conservative movement in the United States that regains its vigour, that becomes less of an industry, that is much more invested in the ideas and showing how the ideas play out in very practical ways in the everyday lives of people then I think uh, there's enormous opportunity for organisations on the right to make some significant differences. And I think Act the Acton Institute has never lost sight of that. As Paul mentioned, we do start with these foundational principles. And because we start with those foundational principles and we never lose sight of those foundational principles, I think we're in a very good position to try and start and help and contribute to this revival on the political right that we really do need in the United States today. Thank you. Good evening. I just want to tell you a little bit more about my personal story as a context to explain to you some about how to help the poor. I think that that's something that is so ingrained in the, in the soul of all of us wanting to help others. Well, I grew up in a communist household, 
My father was founding member of the Puerto Rican Communist Party. He was there in 1959 with 15 men when they started the Communist Party. He used to tell us that America was the enemy of the human race, and it was my sacred duty to destroy America. I believe him. He was my dad. <laughs> I, I eventually joined the party with him, but before that, many things happened. I, I never forget the night when I see my mother crying, and in the middle of the night, she goes out of the home to talk with two men who were always standing in front of our home, checking on my father. The, Many years later, I found out that they were FBI agents who were always after him. My father left an extensive FBI record, which I have at home, and I probably have my own somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, but my, at the same time, my mother was a humble Puerto Rican woman of the 1960s, which she used to say, you know, what we are, whatever he says we are, I don't care. I only care about the four kids I have at home and I cannot feed because you're always playing politics. My father didn't care. His life was communism. And I always will see her crying, going out, trying to say, change things. But deep inside of me, I wanted what my father was offering. I wanted that kind of commitment to a cause. And I, at the same time, I wanted to reconcile a double consciousness that was happening in my soul because my mother would sneak us to go to mass with friends without my father knowing about it. He would not have allowed it. You know, religion is the opium of the people that keeps you thinking on heaven while the capitalists are having a good time here on earth, as he used to tell. So I, I tried to reconcile this double consciousness and eventually what was a good Catholic and communist boy to do? I joined the Jesuit order, of course. <laughs> This is in 1986. I was in the heart of the revolution in Central America, and the Jesuits were at the heart of, of the process. And I was looking forward to go to Nicaragua, to Sandinista Nicaragua, to study philosophy and to study liberation theology with the great liberation theologians of the time, Ignacio Yacuría, Juan Luis Segundo, Gustavo Gutierrez. These men invented liberation theology. My father, who was an atheist, was so happy for me because he knew the Jesuits well. And when it was not to happen because the older ones of, uh, here probably remember the seven Jesuits who were murdered in El Salvador. And I was going to be living in the home where they were massacred. Out of concern for us, they decided not to send us to Nicaragua, and that's when I left seminary. I did not want to be a priest. I wanted to be a Jesuit priest in revolution, in Central America, fighting against America. When that did not happen, I left seminary, and I decided to come to the United States, the place I would have never come. I came to the guts of the monster, as we used to call this country in, in, in the party. And I landed in the University of Southern Mississippi, of all places. <laughs> you can imagine this black communist kid who hates America lands in the deep south. But I always say that that's where my lungs were filled with the air of freedom. I did not realize it at the time, but soon I realized that there was something in this country and in the ideas of freedom that I was missing. I, it's the first time that I really challenged the safe assumptions of my ideology. You know, ideologies are like a pair of glasses you put on yourself, and they are so comfortable. You, want, you don't want to get rid of those glasses. 
And through that prism, you look at the world. And for the first time, I was confronted with the idea that maybe I was wrong. Long story short, I don't have the time to tell all of it, but eventually I surrendered the ideas and the fantasies of socialism. At the same time, I lost my father because he died a good communist. But before he died, he told me this, Ismael, you better fight for what you believe, because that's what he did. He fought for what he believed. And many in America, we talk about freedom, but we don't do much to fight for the ideas of freedom. And this country helped me understand certain things that I use today in the ministry to the poor. And the first one was the dignity of every human person. You know, as a communist, my dignity lied in being a faithful drop in the great wave of revolution. If I was a faithful drop, if I did my duty as a revolutionary, my life had meaning. Apart from that wave, I was just a curious accumulation of atoms destined to nothingness. And that's exactly what Marxism is all about. But America taught me that I am unique and unrepeatable, made in the very image and likeness of God, with the moral capacity of self-realization. Each one of us has that capacity of reason to know the truth and of will to do the good. And there lies our dignity in the capacity of knowing the truth and doing the good. But as I come to America at great personal cost, I see some of you abandoning the ideas of freedom and embracing the ideas of socialism. I couldn't believe it. Exactly what's what we do with the poor. Well, we, we dump stuff at the poor. We give them free stuff and more free stuff, and under the weight of the free stuff we dump at them lies their dignity waiting. So as I engage in ministry, I see this happening. One day I'm sitting in the ministry desk and I see the line of people coming for food. And I said, you know, I'm seeing here the kids of those you have been giving food for a long time coming themselves now for food. We are part of the problem of dependency. We are creating a cycle of dependency that is destroying the souls of people who are more or less keeping them well-fed. So I renounced my ministry in the Catholic Church because my bishop, you know, I, I love my Catholic faith, but my bishop just wanted me to pay people's bills, give them food, and don't be controversial, Ismael. You're too controversial. Well, if we are not controversial, we are part of the problem. And in this process, the Acton Institute was instrumental because in the beginning, I could not understand my Christianity apart from socialism. I thought I was in some kind of heresy when I began to doubt socialism. And here is this priest speaking a language that resonated with me. Well, lo and behold, today I'm here. But that is what we do with the poor. We treat them like we treat our pets. We basically put a bowl of food there, and your pet comes every day, and he eats the food, and you pat the, 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 the poor and make you feel good about it. And he comes and you repeat and do it again and again and again. And that is not helping the poor. That is disrespecting the poor. That is treating them as inferior beings that you take care of. You actualize the, your dignity. You feel good about yourself when you pack the bag of food and give it to them. But it's not supposed to be about you. It's supposed to be 
about the poor. And I'm going to finish with this. Uh, in the Freedom and Virtue Institute, that is really a, a daughter of, or a son of, of the Acton Institute, we try to create simple, practical, meaningful projects that use the ideas of freedom to help the poor. For example, we have a self-reliance club with children that's going all over the country now. The kids join the club in public schools. We teach them economics. They work in entrepreneurial initiatives. And at the end of the year, they have earned enough money by working so they can buy their own school supplies instead of getting the free handout from some church. How that happened? Well, three, three years ago, I went to this massive distribution of school supplies, and what did I see? Well, a sea of black and brown kids getting the free, cheap school supplies, supplies from a small cadre of white people. And I said, there's something wrong here. I want to be in the receiving end. I, I don't want to be always in the receiving end. Well, it's always us in the receiving end. I want to be in the giving end. But you have to be productive to be able, into, to, be able to give. And that's exactly the answer. We make them productive so they can earn their way out of poverty. And what they were learning, they were learning that there is benefit at the end of the long lines of dependency. There is benefit. And it doesn't come from mom and dad. It comes from those white people we hate. We go into, in front of them, smiling at their faces anyway, because they have the good stuff. And I said to that, enough. Make them earn, earn their way out of poverty. And these clubs are now growing all over the country. And finally, we have a effective compassion training where we train churches and nonprofits in how to help the poor effectively. Let me give you five, to, fit, to, to end my discussion here, uh, five points that I think that we are missing in helping the poor. Number one is that we need to decide who we are as Christians. Are we the higher hand of the state or are we faithful Christians present among the poor. I, I am convinced that ministries should not receive any government funding. Government funding annihilates, annihilates the soul of organizations. We need to make a decision. Again, we are the hard hand of the state or we are faithful Christians present among the poor. We receive whatever God bestows on, into our hands and we do what we can to help the poor. We are there with them. We suffer with them. We fight the good fight with them, but always with what God has bestowed in our hands. Number two, respect the poor. Avoid the emotional attachment to the idea that you can rescue people. I always say there is one savior and it's not you. <laughs> so you need to surrender this idea that we can rescue people. Because right there, when you are trying to do that, you are saying that you are better than they are, that they don't have what it takes to uplift themselves from their condition. Number three, avoid activism and fight for substance. In black America today, I'm talking about as a proud African, black Puerto Rican who's married to a south side of Chicago African-American woman and we have a daughter who is going to college and is female, Puerto Rican, and black. We are covered. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And she just went to college, and the applications for college, they were asking her what was her name, and she wrote, none of your business. <laughs> it's not consequential. It should be inconsequential what our race is. But we have to avoid this idea that collective identity is what makes us who we are. We need to go back to the individual human person made in the image of God. We have gone, the, the, the pendulum of race consciousness has gone all the way from evil exclusion because of race to inconsequential inclusion because of race. And in the process, we have forgotten the person in front of us. The person has been lost in an expansive and yet shallow sea of color. And we need to surrender the idea that our dignity lies in the group. The, third, the fourth point is to rediscover our individuality, our existential dignity. We have this idea that because we are all human beings, then we have to just give to people because they have this intrinsic dignity. But the intrinsic dignity of the human person is simply an instrument. You know, God gave us these capacities. But those capacities have to be actualized. That's what we call the existential dignity of the person. In terms of intrinsic dignity, dignity you know, Stalin and Hitler had the same dignity as Mother Teresa. But what they did with the capacity of choice is what gives them their intrinsic dignity, and that's what separates people. So we had to be courageous in really separating the poor. Do not romanticize the poor. There is good and there is evil in the heart of every man. And we need to have that challenge within ourselves that we are going to treat every person as every person deserves. And finally, we need to go back to the basics. And what are the basics? The family. If 70% of your children are born out of wedlock, I don't care how many billions of dollars you spend in worthless government programs, your society will continue to be in disarray. We need to go back to the church. In the past, when you used to go to the church, the pastor will tell you, I'll help you, but I want to see you on Sunday. You better treat that woman right. You better stay in the straight and narrow. There was a moral expectation attached to the gift. But here comes the government with a check in the hand and says, forget about the pastor. You deserve this. We need to surrender that. And finally, work. Work. It's not going to kill anyone. <laughs> but we are forgetting 62% of, of churches in America give food away. 2% of them have any kind of work-related activities attached to the problems they have. We need to flip that, that chart. Basically, that is what I have to say. And again, our ministry in the Freedom and Virtue Institute arose out of the work and the ideas that I learned from the Acton Institute. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, Most of you, I think, here have been to Acton uh, events before, probably this one and others. But I 
the people that we have here tonight, I wanted to uh, use them as a um, sort of a uh, heuristic example to, to sort of describe what Acton is. Um, I'm a Baptist. Those two are Catholics. I'm worth two of them. And uh, they're from different parts of the world and the country we are. Um, but the ideas, as Ismail described, as Sam talked about, the ideas are the same. They are Judeo-Christian Western civilization's ideas. Uh, it just so happens it's the United States of America where they are most pronounced and announced and elaborated and put to the test at a think tank. You know, Acton Institute is a think tank. It's not uh, an extension of a Catholic priest. He's the greatest Catholic priest I know. Uh, but it's a think tank where he happens to be president where there are Orthodox and Catholic and Protestants, Evangelicals, all those stripes. Because of what Sam mentioned earlier, and Ismail talks about as the practice of his ministry, it is who is the human person? Who created the human person? For what purpose? What is the natural law? We talk about that a lot, and we talk about it not because we're trying to be philosophical, and there's nothing wrong with that, but because it is the natural law that tells us what the natural arising associations are, the family, the church, work, business, labor, government, whatever it is that's normal for human beings in society. And the creator has provided rights and responsibilities for each one of those. That's all we're talking about. Now, I don't think you have to be a Christian believer to get all of that. Plenty of people have said they're not Christian believers and have gotten that. They're usually philosophers in universities before they lost their jobs or retired. Not a lot of the philosophers talk that way anymore. But this was a very known and understood thing in Western civilization for hundreds of years. Um, this think tank, this institute, is needed because the ideas are not only the correct ideas, they're the practical ideas that work. Again, Ismail's ministry is an example of that. And um, I stood here a year ago. I think, Sam, was it two, three days after the uh, uh, election of Donald Trump? And I said, it was a moment for the freedom movement to take advantage of. Whether you're conservative, libertarian, whatever you are, take advantage of this movement. So I would like to say, I told you so. <laughs> and all I mean by that is, there, there is a reason that Donald Trump, who spent his public life never saying much that sounded conservative. I'm not trying to attack or praise anyone. I'm just speaking facts here. There's a reason that Donald Trump, who spent his career not sounding like a conservative, appointed Betsy DeVos, appointed or, or uh, chose Mike Pence for his vice presidential nominee, who has chosen um, Neil Gorsuch, Gorsuch for the Supreme Court, and a host of other judicial nominees. Now, not everything's perfect. Please don't think this is a commercial for, I can list the sins of Donald Trump's administration if you would like me to. But the point is, there's a reason that in 2016, the, the politician that won chose the path that he did. It was to appeal to people who do still think like Western civilization's ideas. Again, not perfect. But he didn't run as a socialist. Bernie Sanders did. And he lost bad, even if Hillary didn't rig the election against him, which I think she did. <laughs> Donna Brazile said so. 
Um, I said that last time, and I say it again tonight to say we should be encouraged because truth is truth. No matter how much it's under siege, no matter how many people want to reject it, it is still the truth, whether it is the truth that faith teaches us or the truth that reason teaches us, which are just two different ways the Creator tells us what's true. Truth is truth, and if these ideas are true and this think tank stands for it, then it's why you find people like Ismail, whose life is radically changed and spends the rest of his time on this earth teaching these ideas and transforming life. So what is a think tank for, like Acton Institute? A unique think tank that says faith and reason are the ways to know the truth. It's to transform the thinking of people. So it does me a lot of good to come to these events, to see people come out, to talk about these things, to listen to us, but also to talk together. And so before I'm the only one talking, let's open it up for questions. Anything you want to talk about, any a question you want to address to anyone or subject to talk about, we're happy to do that. I think there are microphones. Are there microphones? If I could get y'all to come to the front with the microphone so you know who is raising their hand. Thank you. Um, when we talk about the importance of work, um, one of the things that I, that I reflect on is that um, this push to automate um, automobiles, you know, so that, so, you know, the driverless cars. And I don't remember there being a public debate about whether, you know, citizens want driverless cars on the street or where there, where there's legislation passed. It just seemed to be something like an inevitability. Uh, given the importance of work for, for the poor and also the, to be able to make the conservative case uh, for the next generation, how do we answer this, this problem of almost universal automation? What is, um, you know, people are talking about, you know, um, guaranteed basic income and, and other kinds of, kinds of things, but what would be the, the thoughts about this sort of future of um, hyper-automation that's going to have a lot of job displacement? <clears throat> I guess that was directed to me, right? Uh, well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. Um, uh, first is, it's not as if we haven't been through this before. <laughs> Technological change, whether it's the Industrial Revolution, whether it's the changes that we saw in the, in the United States with the development of the automobile, they put a lot of people out of the horse and buggy business suddenly stopped. A lot of people who worked in things, occupations like that and all the ancillary industries attached to that, uh, th those jobs went away. But they were replaced by other things. Um, now, are we moving towards greater automation? Sure, in some areas of the economy we certainly are. Manufacturing, I think, is clearly one. There's a lot less manufacturing jobs in any number of industries, including the automobile industry, because of automation. Um, but I think the key is not to think we have to stop this process because A, we can't. Two, if we try to stop it here, you can be sure that other, other countries will do it anyway, which will leave us at a severe competitive disadvantage. But also, thirdly, I think it creates opportunities. And if you live in an open competitive economy, then there's always going to be people with new ideas who are creative who will come along and create new forms of wealth 
new forms of industry, new types of businesses that will require people to work in them. It might not be doing the same things that they were doing before, but they'll still require some people to do these things, certain skills that they're going to need that machines can't replicate. Um, a friend of mine named Jay Richards, who's done a lot with Acton actually, he uh, has a book coming out on this subject. And I think it's, something, it's literally called something like why we don't need to fear these things. The things that we do need, I think, to be concerned about are losing a sense that human beings are in control. That's, to me, I think, a bigger problem than worrying about what it's, what it's, if, if this is going to somehow result in some sort of much higher levels of unemployment. I don't think it is. Um, we live in the, in the country, in the United States at the moment, what's the unemployment rate? 4 something percent. That's the lowest in 20 years, and yet we're moving more and more in this automated direction. So I don't see a correlation between these things necessarily. That doesn't mean that there won't necessarily be problems, but if you have an open and competitive eco economy that, in which people can adapt quickly to new changes, that is how I think you deal with these problems, rather than trying to regulate them in such a way that you actually end up distorting the market in some very serious ways. Um, I, I wanted to add something about that. Um, and I see this with a background in education as well as government service. And, and, and speaking of Betsy DeVos, who's a wonderful patron of this institute, we just had her for our annual dinner and we had a uh, listening session where she listened to local educators in Grand Rapids and we touched on this. I think from the, the standpoint of what Acton believes about the human person, when we wallow in fear about um, artificial intelligence and automation and, and the, the, the speed of technology, we are being defeatist. We are saying one of two things. Some human beings simply are incapable of keeping up with uh, the way the world is changing, and I reject that. Or we're saying, I don't want to keep up with it. I want to be guaranteed to do the same thing I've always done or my father did, and I want to do it on and on and on. Well, those are two unacceptable attitudes, I think. They're not worthy of the human person. Um, and, and one of the biggest ways that this problem has to be solved, and this gets to Betsy and education and all that, is we have to return education to the person and to the family to decide how people will be educated. People should pursue the kinds of education that they are suited for and desire with the option to change their mind as they go through their life and do different things and be encouraged to do that. Instead, we have far too rigid a control, whether it's government bureaucrats and politicians or unions or whatever it is, there are straitjackets put onto people, and that is, it's dehumanizing, and I think we get these kinds of consequences when we do that. With due respect to good attitudes, it's still a very strong potential that if in the next 15 years the trucking industry is automated, there'll be major dislocations that we were talking before about people 55 plus who may have to retrain. So we need to keep the dignity of the human person in mind as we prepare for that. In 40 years, 25% of all jobs will be automated, or so it's predicted by people who study those things. That doesn't mean we won't be blessed with the creativity to come up with things that will, maybe some things we can't even imagine right now. 
Imagine someone 200 years ago coming back now to see the, the things we have now thanks to the blessings of creativity with which we've been endowed. But we're going to have to be ready to pick up on Michael's point to deal with those things because there's going to be potentially massive dislocations. And we need to be mindful of those potential problems so we're properly prepared for them. Because to take someone 55 years old who still has maybe kids in college, he's got a house he's taking care of, he's dislocated in a major way at that age. So we really need to give some serious thought to how we're going to prepare for those eventualities. 15 years as they flash, that could be on us very quickly. So we need to prepare ourselves pray that we'll be given the creativity to help deal with these problems. These are going to be serious things we're going to have to deal with. Yep. Are we here? Uh, thank you for coming here and sharing your wisdom yeah. and experience and some scar tissue too I was able to detect. Um, I'm an economist, recovering economist I think. <laughs> And uh, what I learned in my uh, many years is to look around and try to observe what's happening that's different than when I was uh, around earlier. And what I see when I look around in this audience, for example, I don't see very many young people. When I look around in church, <laughs> we'll need a definition of young, apparently. <laughs> young and young in spirit, Art. I take the exception. I look around in church, and I don't see very many young people. Where do I see the young people? I came up on the L, and I looked around in the L uh, car that I was in, and there were a lot of young people there. And every one of them had their nose stuck into their cell phones. That's where the young people are. So why aren't, why isn't the church and other religious activities servicing that? Why don't we produce stock information that can be included in email and Facebook and Instagram and the rest of that? Why don't we have religious ceremonies and experiences downloadable from iTunes, you know, at a price? Why don't we have the Eucharist delivered by drone from Amazon? <laughs> well, maybe that's a little bit far. <laughs> the point is that if you've got to serve your customers, Pardon me for talking about no storms, but if you're going to serve your customers, you've got to see where they're at and where, what they're looking at to communicate with them. And I think we're missing a good bet there across the board. Can I comment on that? There are some good examples uh, of religious organizations, churches, who are actually doing good work in this area. A very good example is someone who used to live here in Chicago for a long time, Bishop Robert Barron, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know 
the, the Catholics here will know who I'm talking about, but he was, uh, he was the rector of the seminary here. He's now in uh, Los Angeles. He's an auxiliary bishop out there, I think. Yeah, in Los Angeles. And he created a whole series of um, media products. It was simple, the first one was just called Catholicism. It was a five-set, five, uh, um, what, five-hour episode things. And it's, um, right, and it's, it's a beautiful introduction to the Christian faith. It tackles all the tough issues. Uh, and he's gone on his Word on Fire Ministries, which I know is very heavily supported by a lot of people in Chicago, and has done amazing evangelical work around the country. And it's an example of a clergyman taking something that's very modern, using technology, realizing, okay, this is where the, this is where the marketplace in Athens is, is now. If I was St. Paul today, this is where I'd be going to, to engage people's minds and to ask them questions and to bring them to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. That's a very good example of how it can be done. Uh, but there's no question, I think you're right, that, that religious organizations and churches face some major challenges in this area because on the one hand, um, use the example of the, the Eucharist. It's a humorous example, but I, I want to bring people into the Eucharist. I don't want to be sort of turning it into a commodity that people just, right? So, that's, that, so there's, a, there's a very fine line between the technology taking over and becoming the purpose of the exercise as opposed to the technology becoming the means by which you bring people into the body of Christ. Uh, and, you know, that's hard for a lot of clergy, particularly older ones, because clearly some of the older models are not working. Uh, and that's partly because communities have changed, new technologies, we've had a lot of family breakdown, a lot of civil society breakdown, a lot of the structures that once churches relied upon are no longer there. And some of the newer structures, to the extent that they are structures that exist, are much harder for some clergy to grapple with. But in my experience, younger clergy, whether they're um, evangelical, Protestant, Catholic, whatever, are much more adept at this sort of thing. You want to know something about what the church believes? Here's the catechism. You can download it from this website instead of giving them a book, for example. Or you want to know something about the, why miracles are true? Here, look at this particular website. It talks about that. So younger clergy, I think, are, are much more adept at doing that. What I do think they have to avoid is trying to be more worldly than the world. Right? You know, if I grew up in the 1970s, which is a miserable time to be a Catholic. <coughs> miserable time. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. It's miserable time. <laughs> You know, clown masses, priests trying to pretend that they're teenagers, um, bad liturgy, um, seamless garments, all this stuff, which, is, which really didn't seem to have much of an evangelical impact except drive people away. Uh, because the problem is a church that tries to be more secular than the secular world is always going to look stupid. It's much better being true to who it is, being uncompromising about who it is and what it believes, but being willing at the same time to engage people where they are. So, because the point of engaging people, when you, we talk about going out into the peripheries, the point is not to go out into the peripheries and just confirm people in their peripheriness. The point is to bring them in. And that's what I worry about at the moment.
Going to the peripheries is good, it's important, Christians have always done that, but the point of going to the peripheries is not to hang out in the peripheries, it's not to stay in the field hospital forever, it's to bring people in to the fullness of life with Christ. I will say that, you know, culture is everything. Culture is everything. Uh, but there is a fear in the church of being swallowed by the culture, but also of then we, we, we miss opportunities to engage the culture. And there's always a balance there between being swallowed by the culture and transforming the culture. So many clergy are afraid of really engaging. So there is a chasm between economics and faith. And the worst place to learn economics, you know when that is, is Sunday Mass, Sunday services, when the priests or the pastors are talking from the pulpit. And so there is this fear of engaging the, the world. If you try to watch a religious movie, they're just boring. And part of this is because they're just so preachy. They, they have not learned how to be good at the art of, of creating a movie. So, so we need to create a balance between transforming the culture and being conquered by the culture so we can preach the faith and at the same time we can be successful, we can be good at doing what, what we do. I wanted to add, did Mike Stark come tonight? Does anybody know that name, Mike Stark? Not here. Well, shame on him. Um, I, I have a positive thing to say. I met him last year, and I don't know how long his Bible app uh, had been in existence, but it was very exciting to know about, um, and it's a good example, I think, of um, what uh, people who, who think like we do can use for technology. The problem is, and I uh, agree with what Sam and Ismail have said, one of the problems is it's, it's all or nothing. It is uh, being Luddite, being afraid of technology, or saying, well, that's not what the Apostle Paul had, so we don't have, you know, well, he didn't have other things that you're not going to give up either, like running water in bathrooms. <laughs> but, but um, the, 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 or, and, and I'm, from, I'm uh, from the Baptist evangelical tradition, too many of that persuasion run headlong and then everything comes about entertainment and technology for technology's sake. The Church of Jesus Christ is smart enough to balance things and do it the right way. And, and so I share Sam's view. If, if it is the truth of the gospel, the entire gospel for uh, living our entire lives is um, adhered to, then the technology will be used the right way. It won't become the message. And uh, so it just takes a little harder work and, and a desire not to be popular, but to be effective. Can, can I just say something real quick? My name is yes. Allison. I have to go like in a couple of minutes, but real quick. <laughs> um, I just want to address the gentleman over there talking about the, the people on the train, the students on the train with the phones. I'm an educator. I work in high school and I work in an affluent high school, and I do not want to say the name of the high school. <laughs> and I'm going to give you the real deal, the real deal about teenagers in this day and age. Because most of you probably really, I mean, I know we all want to think really positive and beautiful about our children, our grandchildren, but this is the real deal. 
when I was, and I'm a substitute teacher, when I started in 2004, students did not go to school with phones. My oldest was a sophomore. And I've been in this, this education from 2004 until now. And this is, the, this is what's going on. No cell phones, no distractions. Not a lot of poison coming into you. It's straight, raw education. Teacher to pen to pencil to the most they probably had was get your heads off the desk. Now, this is the real deal. At least, if I'm in a classroom with 30 students, at least eight to 10 will be on their phone. The bell will ring and they're on their phone. And guess what, folks? They're not on the phone downloading the Truth in Life app. They are not downloading how to discover this um, genetic DNA code for cancer. You know what they're doing? They're looking at the latest things, whatever it is, that's secular, that's worldly, that's sexual, that's whatever. I go around like, you're not supposed to be on that. And I can see the, the, the trend is it's getting worse, okay? And teachers, this is a battle. This is a battle. So with that being said, I tell the students there's a time and a place for everything, and it's a balance, mind, body, soul, and spirit. Don't overindulge in technology, and make sure when you're putting it in, make sure it's for your ed edification at the proper time. So trust me, it's not, you know, I hear exactly what you're saying, but the church really needs to step up their game when it comes to the millenniums, the teenagers, because it's heading on a slippery slope, and they're not talking about Jesus. Trust me. Hmm. Thank, you for, thank you for coming this evening. This has been... Very interesting. And I just wanted to reaffirm, uh, Ismail Hernandez, mm -hmm. you're speaking to the idea of um, not just giving out to the poor. I'm a director of a pregnancy resource center. I'm Protestant. It was founded by Catholics, mainly staffed by Catholics <laughs> right now. So we have a good mix there. Um, it's a real challenge for us to, to deal the way you're suggesting. It's been a change, actually, because in the beginning, because we want to save lives, we're just going to hand out, hand out, hand out, and then we'll see repeaters and repeaters and repeaters, and they'll come back with their second child and their third child, and we're happy they're having their children, but nonetheless, there's not a heart change. You know, there's not a change in their lives. So we're taking steps within our center to, to help them earn what we have to give them. But uh, I really appreciate what you had to say. I, I also have a question for Dr. Gregg, and this may be the hard question. I have to put on my glasses. Um, and as a Protestant, maybe I can say this too blithely, but is it, is it the current pope and our current 
millennial generation that's a real driver for elevating this idea of socialism. It is, it is. <laughs> it's, it's such a frustration for me, even talking to my kids who are very conservative in nature, and yet, because they've been through the universities, they have this leaning towards socialism. And, they, and, and, and even though they may know it intellectually, emotionally, it draws them. So, could you speak to how oh, we're going yes. to take practical, like these Catholics to answer that. practical steps, Doctor? Sure, I said, to, I said to Paul beforehand, any questions about the Pope, he answers them. <laughs> he declined, and I said, how about you, Ishmael? No, so I guess it's, it's going to be me. Uh, yes, I've been doing a lot of writing about Pope Francis since 2013, and I, I, it's no secret I'm pretty critical of his economic pronouncements. Um, not because I think he's of bad will. I don't think that at all. I just think that some of the things that he's articulated in some of his writings are just empirically wrong. Uh, no, and I, I, don't, it, it, I, I, don't, I don't say that to be... Uh, um, um, uh, to somehow sound I'm somehow just much more intelligent. That's not the case. It's just that if you're going to be... One of the things we say at Acton is that if clergy are going to be talking, if any Christian is going to be talking about economic subjects, then you probably need to know a little bit about economics, which the economists here who are here will tell you there's some very basic rules of economics that things like supply and demand, incentives matter, trade-offs, comparative advantage, they're all relatively simple. They're all spelled out by Adam Smith over 200 years ago, but you should probably know something about that before you start talking about something like inequality, or e economic inequality, for example. It's like um, a, a Christian theologian, a Christian bioethicist, presumably is not going to be talking about some particularly complex bioethical problem unless they have some understanding of the medicine involved or the sickness that invo is involved or the genetic disorder or whatever it is that's involved. You don't talk about these things unless you have a little bit of understanding of some of the, what you might call the more technical, the more social science, the more empirical scientific side of things. And the good thing about Pope Francis is, and there's many good things about Pope Francis, is that one of the things he, uh, he does is he, he, he comes up with this image of it's not enough to just give someone to someone that you see in the street. He says, you need to kneel down and look them in the eye and talk to them. You just can't treat them like an object. Uh, so, I mean, so there are some very good things, he says, about this particular type of problem. But when it comes to sort of the more macro picture on these issues, um, he's like a lot of clergy of his age. He's grown up at a particular time, a particular place, where there's particular conceptions about what market economies are or what capitalism are, is. And it's very hard for people who are 80 years old to change their minds about these things. So our, our response to this has been to basically be critical but respectfully critical when he, or in fact any clergy, member of the clergy says something that is clearly um, contestable at least contestable and when they're talking about something to do with the economy. And I think you're right. The thing about, I don't think, by the way, Francis is not a socialist. 
He's not a socialist. He's very economically confused, but he's not... <laughs> but, you know, most people are. But he's not a socialist. If there's anything, he's a little bit of an economic populist. Um, but what, is, what I think is... Um, one, of the, one of the reasons why you mentioned young people and the attraction to socialism is that it sounds nice. So socialism is community, isn't it? Socialism is about the group. We love each other. We care about each other. Isn't that what the first apostles did? Didn't the first Jerusalem community, didn't they live, blah, 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 blah. You've all heard the argument. They were starving in a year, too. Right. Right. Exactly. What did Paul do? Did Paul tell all the early Christians to go and live in communes? No. He told them to basically follow whatever vocation it was that they were doing and to give him money so he could send it back to the Jerusalem community to sustain itself. In the Christian tradition, there's always been those people who were called to live in this particular type of, a particular type of communal life. You find this in the Orthodox world, the Catholic world. You also find it in the Protestant world, in the evangelical world. But most of us are not called to live like that. Most of us are called to live in the world following particular vocations, and that's actually the norm. Uh, and so I think, when you, when, I think part of the way of dealing with this problem that you're talking about is to say, well, of course Christians care about community. We do embody the virtue of solidarity. We do love the poor, not just the materially poor, by the way, but the morally and spiritually poor, and sometimes that's actually worse, the material poverty. But community is not the same thing as a planned economy. Community is not the same thing as the German Democratic Workers' Republic, (laughs) what we used to call East Germany. Community is not gulags. Community is not Che Guevara shooting people in the head because they don't fit into the new order. So, and by the way, community is also not the welfare state, to take it to our own level. Mm-hmm. I think in many Christians, they make the mistake. This is worse in Europe, but it's, it's here as well. Solidarity equals love of neighbour. Love of neighbour means giving people things. The best way to do that is through the welfare state. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the line of thinking that goes. Instead of saying, no, we love our neighbour, and the Christian response is to go and help them to the extent that they need help because, as Ishmael has said, one of the worst things you can do in helping someone is to reduce them to dependence because you make them an object. They're no longer the initiator of action anymore. They're no longer using their reason. They're no longer using their free will. They're just becoming more and more dependent. You're treating them like, I like his example, you're treating them like pets. So I think that's the way that you, you explore some of these ideas with younger people and with clergy to say, I do care about the poor. I do want to see people get out of poverty. And that's why I believe in free markets and limited government, because they do it. We live in a fallen world, and one of the things about markets and limited government is they recognize these things, but they turn it to our advantage. And that, I think, is a way of communicating with people by saying, I agree with you. I want to help people. I think community is important, but socialism It's not about community, it's about power and coercion and envy. Let me say something very briefly as as a Catholic. Uh, I am frustrated trying to defend the Pope 
the problem I see is his ambiguity, uh, that he says things that can be interpreted in so many different ways, and although he is not a socialist, there are socialists in the church, and they can use and do use their, his, his words to advance a cause that, that undermines the church from, from within. And that's the problem I, I see. You know, there are many in the church who want to prudentialize the absolute and absolutize the prudential. You know, they want to say abortion and homosexual marriage, that's, well, that's theologically ambiguous. We can think about that. But listen to what Pope, uh, Pope, say, Pope Francis is saying. That's, that's absolute, you know, even when he's speaking just opinions of his who is not a technician in terms of economics and is so ambiguous in the way he speaks, so extemporaneously uh, talking about issues that are very complicated. And, and that is the, the fear I have, that his influence can be used by people within the church to un undermine the church. Let me say something quickly as a Protestant about the Pope. <laughs> um, and, and it's a serious point. Um, for many Protestants, John Paul II radically changed the way they saw the Catholic Church. He did a tremendous amount of good in so many ways, but that was one of them. And then to a lesser degree, but still very important for evangelicals in the academic world and the scholarly world, Benedict did tremendous things, uh, tremendous respect for them. And then Francis comes along. and. Um, this pope um, is a sympathetic figure to, I think, a lot of people, uh, secular, Christian, Protestant, Catholic, what have you, because he's clearly a caring person uh, and a kind and a good person. Um, but, you know, you should have a care who your advisors are. Mm -hmm. you, should dis you, you should care who's around you and putting words in your mouth who makes you look to be saying things that you're not, and I'm trying to be very generous here because I don't believe he's a socialist. I don't think he knows enough about these things to have declared, and you know, I am this or I am that. Um, and, and I still, uh, one of my favorite moments on television, and some of you saw it, we talked about it last year, I think, when Senator Barbara Boxer decided to take on Father Robert Sirico. Mm -hmm. and, and what you just said is exactly what he called her on, that you can't pick and choose what the Holy Father says and decide, that, well, this is really something the church is saying and it's not. And uh, so I, I, think, I think I would close with this. This is not a problem of Catholic leaders only. There are certainly Protestant leaders. They, most of them just don't have a big enough platform uh, to, to get you know, heard the way that the Pope does. Uh, but I think it's all the more reason for places like Acton Institute, ministries like Ismail's and so many others, to speak the truth, kindly, lovingly, but clearly about these things. Because what Sam just said about community is profoundly important. When we call people, whether they're old or young, millennials or Generation X or whoever they are, uh, boomers, on their sympathetic, emotional approach to things. Well, community, community. Well, could we have a conversation about what community do you mean? Kim Jong-un has a community. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of it. <laughs> but I do want to be a part of the voluntary communities that I can join. So. Um, I think my question may be an extension of her question and Dr. Greg's response about the millennials. 
So I have a nephew who's just graduating from Michigan State and he's going to go to medical school. He's raised in a two-parent two home. Um, not perfect, but a two-parent home. He um, was raised going to church. Um, and he has experienced all the benefits that a capitalist approach to economics would provide. But yet I will talk to him and he's about to go to medical school and he sees socialized medicine as something that's positive for him going forward. I have a niece who graduated from Michigan who's now in her first year at law school. This the, the same story and, and, and you, you, you talk to her and she's a, a, a budding socialist, I just don't get it. And I, I don't know I could give them something to read, they're not gonna read a book. I could give them an article, they're not gonna read an article. So I have a half an hour of their time, so I'm trying to think, what can I say to them to spark something in their mind that would cause them to question um, the things U of M has taught them, the things Michigan State has taught them, the more they're gonna hear in their graduate education. Um, because in, in my mind, the way they're going, the policies that they're espousing are going to destroy the very things that they're trying to achieve, and they don't seem to, to realize it. So what would you say? You have a 15-minute conversation with them over turkey at the table. What could you, what can you do? Because that's really the only time you got, because they're not going to read a book. They're not going to, you know, that's it. And, and it just grieves my heart, because these are people that I love, and they're destroying. How do you think this turkey made it to the table? <laughs> I mean, that's a very practical example. How do you think this turkey got here? Do you think that um, that uh, it was planned by a government? No, it was the you know, business markets that did this. But, but more seriously, a couple of things. First of all, um, I'm told that most people go through some sort of liberal left-wing stage. I was never on the left on anything. I, so I have, can't speak to that experience, but apparently you can. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I get asked all he the time. He has no soul. That's right. Um, uh, but it's not unusual for people of that age to start um, thinking about some of these things in ways that uh, some, sometimes they're, meant to, they're, they're trying to challenge you, I think. The second thing, I think, in terms of you have a 15-minute conversation, are you going to persuade, be able to persuade them uh, in that 15 minutes? No, but I think what you can do is ask questions rather than sort of, trying to give a treatise about this is how markets work and this is why they're so good and this is why the other things fail. Just ask them questions. Well, how would, why would we think that healthcare, for example, why would we think that's exempt from the, from the forces of supply and demand? Just to pose the question, not to sort of give them the answer, which is, of course, it's not exempt from the forces of supply and demand. Food is just as basic as healthcare, yet we don't have government food ministries, right? So to ask those sorts of questions without giving them the answer unless they ask you what you think, to plant little seeds of doubt in about collectivist solutions. I think that's one way of, in that very short period of time uh, to do that. I do think that giving some people something to read at particular points in life when they seem open at some point to thinking about different things. Uh, I can't tell you the number of people who I've given, um, you know, just one short op-ed on a particular subject and, you know, years later they've come back and said, you know, that got me thinking. It made me realise that 
what I'd been taught in uh, sociology class turned out to be not particularly accurate or true. Or, third thing, stories. Stories of how, both good stories about how people have managed to transform themselves and the lives of millions of other people as a consequence of living in free economies. And also the other side of what life, stories of what life is really like in planned economies. The 1970s wasn't just a miserable period to be in the Catholic Church. It was also a miserable period to live in a lot of the West, right? You had, um, you had um, Jimmy Carter. You had, in countries like Britain, you had um, the Keynesian experiment literally falling apart around people. You had um, social democracy on the march, et cetera, et cetera. So to give, and, and then of course across, across the Iron court Curtain you've got terrible things going on. I think to tell people stories of the good side of how people have transformed their lives through business and through free enterprise and then saying, but now, okay, let's talk about the other side. What's it really like to live in a socialist society? Because we've tried that. We've tried that. And what does it produce? Shorter lifespans, very bad quality health care, population implosion, um, consumerism in the sense that people start valuing material things more than they otherwise should, and of course, oppression, 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 oppression. You want oppression? Let's go look and see what communist systems are like. So good stories, bad stories, I think younger people often respond to those much better. And that's after that. That's when you can start giving them longer things, more in-depth things, more systematic things to think about. But very briefly, I think that we need to sanitize as conservatives our language too. Sometimes conservatives speak about compassion like we're sitting on a nail, you know? I mean, we need to, we need to become sophisticated in, in, in learning the language of compassion and use their language to teach the ideas of freedom and, and be engaged in, in, in the actual life of people. Uh, many times, many conservatives write books about people who they had never experienced, uh, books about poverty of people who have never been in a poor community. But we, and we are actively present in those communities, and that's one of the things I wanted to do with our Freedom and Virtue Institute, is to bring these ideas into the inner city. And there are people that hate us. The, the nicest thing I'm called is an Uncle Tom. That's the nicest. <laughs> but that's okay. The longer you are there present, they eventually respect you, at least that. And eventually they'll listen to you. We need to sanitize our, our language and be actual, actually present in the lives of communities that we know in advance will re reject us. Um, let, let me uh, address this briefly um, because uh, when, when I worked in government and foreign policy, uh, I worked in the Bush administration, um, in the State Department, and when we dealt with leftist authoritarians, you knew that socialist rhetoric was emanating from evil. And I mean that seriously. These people weren't ignorant. They know socialism doesn't work. It doesn't provide all the promises they said, but they were empowered by it as leftist authoritarians, and so that's why they 
uh, favored it or said they did. When I've been an educator uh, dealing with people the age you're talking about, it's ignorance for the most part. It's emotion-driven and it's ignorant. Mm -hmm. You respond accordingly. You say all the right things to leftist authoritarians um, and they don't like it, but, but that's what they have to be told. Mm -hmm. But for people that are in ignorance, particularly younger people, you do have to talk to them in a way that they can understand um, and find the ways that make the most sense. Um, I don't know whether uh, creating a fight at Thanksgiving is the best way. You, you know your family better than I do. Um, <laughs> but uh, we have uh, out there some of the film products that Acton has produced over the years um, and be happy to talk about uh, all that's not out there as well uh, because sometimes it is film that makes the most difference. You know, um, uh, I can't believe I'm going to promote somebody else's organization, so don't tell anybody at home, but, you know, Prager University, for example, and several others do a very good job, uh, and, and Acton is uh, looking at some of the things that we want to do, short films, uh, a video that can be on the Internet, uh, that sometimes that's all it takes, and as you said, it could, it could sit there for a long time before it matters to them. C.S. Lewis didn't matter to me uh, until I was out of high school and had to actually answer questions of people that disagreed with my faith and my politics, and then it started to come to me, you know. So that's one possibility. Why don't we do this? Let's, we have time for one more question. Uh, so did you guys have anybody that, David? All right, there you go. I would like to pose a question um, on the um, the the convention of states um, movement that's spreading throughout the, the states uh, today and in recent years. Um, in Article Five of the Constitution, I, I believe it is. Um, uh, there's a clause. You you probably know it better than I. But um, do you have any comments on the traction or the viability of the movement of the Confederate? Confederacy of States or the Convention of the States? Because I'm not for the Confederacy of the States at all. That's it. Exactly. Convention. Um, I think you're talking about the Convention of the States. I believe Mike Ferris and uh, a number of other conservative leaders have been uh, leading that. I don't think he is now. I think he's actually at Alliance Defending Freedom. I don't think he's doing that. But um, I, as a political scientist, I, I would just say that the, the, the two major arguments on either side of that um, are opposing one another, and they're both very good arguments, I think. There are people that argue that there's no, uh, Mark Levine is one of these, I think, that's promoting this as well, or Levin, how does he say it? Yeah. That there is no way to solve the problems of our constitutional republic, um, our, our indulgence of ourselves and all that, if we do not make the decision like the alcoholic makes, which is I'm going to do things that make it impossible for me to act on my habits and my urges and all of that. And then there are people on the other side that are basically saying, I get that, but you are opening a door for so many things that could happen and other uh, elements of our society to take advantage of that no matter what good you think you'll get out of this, the, the danger is much, much greater. I, I am agnostic about that. I don't take enough time to read all that. Uh, when I'm looking at constitutions, it's usually in foreign policy and, and other countries. Um, but I would say this, and then you two, please say whatever you want to say. Um, both sides, to me, are admitting the fundamental problem is always human nature. 
and whether you're a Christian or not, you say original sin or you just say, you know, our proclivity to do harm to others, whatever it is, um, it's still the same problem. If you have to think of ways to change a document put together by some of the smartest people the world has ever known that has always worked unless our human nature gets in the way. I don't know what change you can do or what fix you can do. You know, I have friends that want to do term limits. I get what they're saying, um, but why is that a guarantee, you know, term limits is going to fix the human nature problem? It always comes back to the human nature problem. So, anyone want to add anything? The, the only thing I'd say, two things. One is, as someone who's born outside the United States, I, I'm always amazed by the deep attachment of Americans to the Constitution. Because outside the United States, very few countries have this very deep attachment to the Constitution. In Europe, they change the Constitution all the time. It's just like another piece of paper. Let's, we, we, the Constitution stops us from doing from this. Okay, well, we'll just change the Constitution. It's the standard way that they deal with these sorts of problems. But Americans are very attached to it because it's part of the whole American experiment in order to liberty. And so the fact that there's even a discussion about having a con convention, not a confederacy, a convention of states, you wouldn't have. So the fact, the fact that this is even being discussed in the United States, to my mind, shows that there is still this deep attachment to the idea of ordered liberty. And the second thing I'd say is something that... Um, go off something that Paul said, and it's simply this. One of the... One of the part of the genius of the American Constitution is that it is so attentive to human nature, it's so attentive to the fact that we are free, that we are creative, but we're also sinful and fallen. You can read that in a secular way, in a religious way, but I think one of the geniuses of the American Constitution is it does take this into account in a way that I don't think any other constitution does. And that has marked the character of the United States for a very long time. It's always interesting that utopians never want to do, deal with the fact of human nature. They want to change it. Well, we celebrated the anniversary, 100th anniversary of a system that tried to do that a couple of days ago, and we know where that led. Please join me in thanking Sam and Ismail for their time. And thank you for being here. Thank you for being supporters of Acton. Uh, we welcome uh, every bit of help in every way, including your ideas, so don't hesitate to let us know that. Before we are released to go eat and drink more, and we invite you to do that, I do want to tell you that uh, you saw the books there. Um, they are offered at a price lower than they are on the website, so please do take advantage of that. If there are things you're interested in, we'd be happy to talk about them. The film products, some of them are there as well as the books, and um, I want to draw attention. Ismail's book is there, uh, Father's book, the one that uh, uh, he's best known for, Defending the Free Market. It is a fabulous book. It's the book I always give to people. If you want to understand who this is I work for and what he's trying to do for the things that we believe in. Um, there's one other book that I would be remiss if I didn't tell you about. It is new to Acton, uh, published this year. It's called Makers of Modern Christian Social Thought. It is a short volume, 
It has an introduction by Jordan Bowler, who's uh, the deputy in the research uh, area of Acton Institute to Sam. Uh, Jordan has uh, two doctorates, uh, theology and, and I guess philosophy. He thinks way too much. Uh, and he's a Michigan State grad and fan, and so that's interesting for, for me. I've, I've told when I moved up here, that's not who you're supposed to be supportive of. I hear loud coughing and everything. Um, but what he's done, and, and Jordan is a Reformed Protestant. He has put together Leo XIII and Abraham Kuyper. You have one of the greatest voices in the Catholic Church, certainly in the modern era, talking about who the human person is and what it means to be a free person and what government should look like in the family and the church and all that. And then you have a Protestant theologian who became the Prime Minister of the Netherlands at the same time writing the same stuff in his own church's style or his own theological style, but the same ideas put together in one volume. And it speaks volumes about what Acton Institute is and what any free people who base their understanding of liberty on their Christian faith. It really underscores the way we should think and talk about these things, even if we have different accents about them. So that is out there, and I encourage you. I use it as a way to say to people, this is the essence of what Acton Institute is trying to do when it talks about its mission of a moral and free society because of the religious foundations of the Western civilization that birthed all of this. So that's all out there. I invite you to join us again for the reception, and thank you for being here. The mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the programs and activities of the Acton Institute, visit our website at acton.org.